Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Let's head over to Bloomberg's Michael McKee with the headlines. Mike. No surprises, no news. A few new words. In a unanimous decision, the Fed retains its five and a quarter to five and a half percent target range for its benchmark borrowing rate and retains its language about determining the extent of additional policy firming that may be appropriate. The policymakers' assessment of the economy contains some new adjectives, but no new information. Activity expanded at a strong pace in the third quarter instead of solid. Job gains have moderated instead of slowed. Inflation remains elevated. The statement says tighter financial and credit conditions for households and businesses are likely to weigh on economic activity. That adds the word financial to the sentence, and it may be a nod to the idea expressed by many Fed officials that raising market rates are doing some of the Fed's work for it, a reason not to have raised rates today. This is the second meeting in a row that the Fed has held rates unchanged. And although the dot plot suggests one more move by the end of the year, the markets may interpret today's decision as confirming that rates have peaked. That's going to be a key question for Chairman Jay Powell coming up. You see, Mike McKee, we want to get to you quickly here, but we see the market moving, lifting up, equities lifting up higher right now, uh, with the Dow up 80 points, two-tenths of a percent, NASDAQ 100 on a tear up eight-tenths of a percent as well. The 10-year yield comes in ever lower, bond prices up, yields down, and the 10-year yield 4.79% distant from the 5% yield. Uh, Mike, the statement is here, and maybe it's a preparation for December 15th, but it seems to be a preparation for a presumed slower American economy. Into this press conference, do you assume we go from 4.x% Q3 down to something dramatically weaker in this present quarter? I don't think the Fed is going to put it that way. They took recession out of their forecast a meeting or two ago and basically have said that the economy can grow at a reasonable rate without the uh, without going into recession. Now, uh, Jay Powell has suggested we still need a period of below trend growth. We're nowhere near that now. If we do see it slow down, the question is, does it go too far too fast? Right now, all indications are it wouldn't, uh, that we could see slower growth without seeing recession, uh, and we could see inflation continue to come down. But that's a question for them. They're, are they in damage control right now, uh, making sure that they don't go too far because they think the economy is going to slow, or do they think they've done enough at this point? Michael McKee, thank you so much. We'll be catching up with you throughout the afternoon. Just taking a look uh, at what's going on, the two-year yield to me, Tom, really stands out. Sharply down, below 5%, as really, to Mike's point, the market is taking this as the Fed has done hiking rates for this economic 40 headlines out now. Mike McKee will have much more on this, as well as our our guest. But Lyle Brainerd showed up for the Fed meeting today. She's at the White House now, uh, holding court as National Economic Advisor. And let me read this headline. It's a Brainerd headline. Fed repeats it will take a cumulative tightening 
and lags into account. Draghi would have just said, we're going out to 2025. <laughs> well, and we're not going to hike anymore, because if you think about the cumulative uh, rate cumulative. hikes, have we seen enough uh, from what already has been right. done, or is this the long and variable lags that a lot of people are talking about? Richard Clarida with us still. He is with PIMCO and Columbia University. Uh, Richard Clarida, I look at cumulative, and that just tells me we're going out there. Draghi would have put a date on it. Can Professor Clarida put a date on this longer Fed at this level? Well, I don't think so. I think, you know, that language cumulative has been in there for, for several uh, yes. meetings. And it does recognize that the path forward depends upon how much they've done uh, in the past. As I've said, these are always balancing acts. I think the Fed's baseline outlook makes a lot of sense. But if there is a risk, the risk is that inflation is too stubborn. If I were recommending or talking to Jay Powell, I would recommend that he, he leave the door open to doing uh, more. He doesn't have to commit to it. Every meeting's live. But, but I definitely don't think he wants to walk away today with markets seeing the headline as Fed is done. That seems to be uh, certainly at least the initial read on this. One line that Michael McKee pulled out was the tighter financial as well as credit conditions are set to weigh on the economy. They added financial into this. How much do you think the Federal Reserve and the members are concerned about some of the volatility we've seen on the long end of the curve that maybe it's getting to something a little dysfunctional, a little bit less just nicely restrictive? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, the short answer is there's probably a range of opinions, but, but certainly uh, Chair Powell recently and Lori Logan, president of Dallas, have, have indicated that it, it reflects, it's do, it is doing some of the Fed's job for it. They haven't pushed back uh, uh, against it. Um, I do think that the challenge, uh, you know, having wordsmithed with others some of these things, the challenge with putting the financial conditions term uh, in this statement is, you know, financial conditions can go up and down and be volatile for a lot of reasons. And then at some point, uh, they, may, uh, they may regret that they included it in the first place. Vice Chairman, thank you so much. He's a former vice chairman of the Federal uh, Reserve He's System. He's sticking with us. Uh, oh, he's going to stay with us? Yeah. Okay, I did not know that. That is very good. Rich Clarita, thank <laughs> you for the generous time uh, today, yeah. uh, given your responsibilities at PIMCO. Joining us now, Diane Swank, Chief Economist, KPMG, and Matthew Hornbach with us, Global Head of Macro Strategy at Morgan Stanley. Diane Swank, we're talking rates, we're talking inflation. I believe there's an employment mandate as well. And part of that, to all of your Midwestern heritage, are auto workers better paid? How do we have wage disinflation if we have unions garnering these historic pay raises? Well, first of all, I want to um, echo what Rich said is our concern is sort of around May and June, where, where is the Fed going to be? And I think the optionality to have rate hikes still on the table and that every meeting's live is really important. So I really agree 100 percent with Rich on that. I think the issue on the UAW strikes and what they have seemed to have gotten is that, first of all, union contracts were lagging private sector contracts during much of the um, expansion and the frenzied hiring boom. And so some some of this is catch-up. I think also it's important that there will be spillover effects in the manufacturing sector more broadly. The key issue is how much will those higher wages spill mm -hmm. over into other manufacturers? That's yet to see, but I do think that's where the tension could show right. up. And it's you know yet to happen. And so they're going to ratify it. These were good contracts and a good win for the UAW, harder for the automakers. But I do think what's important to understand is that many of these 
these contracted wages in the public sector as well yeah. are just now beginning to reset and catch up to where the private sector already was several years ago. Matt Hornbach, uh, what all that Lisa and I have done today, the single moment for me was your Seth Carpenter explaining the Zentner deceleration in this economy from 4.X percent, I know, inventories and that, down to something sub 1% in the Q4. What do our markets do with that deceleration presumed in real GDP? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the program, Tom. I, I do think that the deceleration will be important and factor into how the Fed thinks about this higher for longer <laughs> mantra. I mean, it's true that the meeting today didn't really offer too many surprises, but we do have one more meeting before the end of the year. And even though we don't expect the Fed to be hiking rates at that meeting, uh, there is an open question about what they do with their guidance that comes in the dot plot. That I do think is going to uh, be levered to the growth outlook. And if we do get this deceleration that Ellen and Seth are looking for, then we do, I would suspect that the Fed may have to take a slightly more dovish approach to their outlook for interest rates in 2024 and beyond. Uh, very importantly, Lisa, the two-year yield breaks down to a new low on the two-year yield, as you mentioned earlier, in 10 basis points, now in rounded up on 11 basis points, 4.98%. This raises this question, how do you have a hawkish pause if a pause is a pause? Matt, oh, what's your view? I mean, how much can really uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell lean into this idea that they may not be done without the market saying, yeah, you've been following us all year? Yeah, Lisa, look, I think that what will be key is Powell focusing on the data dependence of the Fed. We, we just got through a pretty strong round of data for the month of September. Uh, we've got two more months of data before the Fed convenes in December. And then again, that dot plot, I do think, is going to be an important signaling mechanism to the extent that they are done hiking rates. They can always double down on the higher for longer theme by taking all of the rate cuts out of 2024. So that's going to be an important variable that investors will be paying attention to. Diane, how much are you looking at the reliance on financial markets to do the work for them at a time when it, things are volatile? And to Rich Clarita's point, financial conditions can change. How much is that not exactly a comfortable place for the Federal Reserve to be in? Well, I agree 100% with Rich on that. And so I guess Rich and I are just in 100% agreement today. But I think that is going to be a danger for the Fed because they're looking for this doing the heavy lifting for them. It is obviously already throwing a bucket of ice on the housing market. That's going to come up in the fourth quarter. That said, the <clears throat> consumer is remarkably resilient. We've got double the savings right. we thought we had with the benchmark revisions, and it's getting interest paid on it now. That is really important to take into account. And the strength of the economy, I, I think we're going to see a deceleration in the, it's hard not to, from almost 5% in the fourth quarter, but the consumer is still going to be pretty strong. We're set up to have pretty strong gains still with 2.5% or so gains in consumer spending. The strength of the economy <clears throat> justifies higher rates. And it also brings into question how much restriction we have. And if financial conditions were to unwind and the route in the bond market were to unwind, right. that takes away the restriction that's out there. And all of a sudden, the Fed has to get back in the game. And so that optionality of being every meeting live, critical. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? 
look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Rich Clarida, what's so important to me is, again, the analog that we're conveniently using of taking Powell back to Volcker. And as Bill Dudley writes an hour ago for Bloomberg, he says the arch fear was Arthur Burns who allowed inflation to get out of control in the 1970s. I believe we have a disinflation vector, but should we fear that inflation is out of control? Well, the analogy I would use, which I think the Fed would, would want to avoid at all costs, is 1966. LBJ had guns and butter. Inflation uh, was moving up. The Fed hiked. And then they blinked. And they cut in 1967. And what we now call the Great Inflation, I think, stems back to uh, a hiking episode that got cut short. And the Fed did not reengage when inflation uh, went uh, up. I don't think the Powell Fed would make the same mistake. Uh, but that's the part of the history book I'd be looking at and trying to avoid. Matt, when we take a look at how the market is handling this, we're not talking at all about the balance sheet. Should we be? I mean, is that part of the discussion in a material way? <clears throat> well, Lisa, I, I do think that the balance sheet will be an important topic to discuss in 2024. Um, but that's to us probably a bit more of a second half uh, of next year issue as opposed to a first half issue. Uh, nevertheless, you know, we will see the Fed's balance sheet continue to, to shrink in terms of its securities holdings. Uh, the, the issue that, that we would be focused on here is what ends up happening with the BTFP, uh, that term funding facility that the Fed introduced back in March, to see what kind of take up we end up getting through the first several months of 2024. I do think that will be an important factor that we should all continue to pay attention to. Diane Swank, to pick up on what Matt Hornbrook just talked about, and of course we see this in Japan with the arch debate even into this evening. Pay attention, folks. Bloomberg Asia, Yvonne Mann and the rest over in Hong Kong following Japan in their odd economic experiment. Diane Swank, are we going to successfully extricate ourselves from, what did Norma Rubini call it, QE1, QE2, QE3, 4, 5, 6? <laughs> I mean, Diane Swank, where are we? I mean, McKee's, McKee's encyclopedic on this. I don't get it. Are we going to get ourselves out of this QE, QT model successfully? 
Uh, that's a big question. I'd love to hear Rich's response on that one. I think, you know, what's interesting is the Fed wants to stop well short, is likely to stop short of their objective in terms of how much they drain their balance sheet. That said, the quantitative tightening, the reductions in their bloated balance sheet, they're still going to stop at a level that's much higher than it was in the past. And what we've seen is anytime there is a financial crisis, this is something the Fed, once we get down to the zero boundary, we have to rely on. Now, the one thing that might be hopeful for the future is that it looks like the non-inflationary rate is rising and that you know we're no longer coming out of a global financial crisis. And if we can avoid another major financial crisis where we literally have to go back down to the zero boundary. We've got a lot of room to stimulate now without going back into the balance sheet. That's for now. And it looks like we'll have some cushion and the descent on rates is going to be significantly slower and end up at a much higher level than we entered uh, the situation at in 2020. Matt, I want to pick up on what you were talking about with the uh, funding program that the Fed has set up for the banks. How much are you seeing signs that there would be serious financial distress if the Fed were to wean the market from this backstop that they created after SVB? Well, well Lisa, I mean, banks, of course, have the ability to raise funding in, in other ways. But um, it's clear from the weekly take up at this facility that there are certain institutions out there in the market that feel it's in their best interest to continue to tap this facility. Um, we wouldn't expect the facility to, to go away in, in March, but um, it is something that we, we carefully monitor. And in addition, you know, when you look at the amount of reserves in the banking system, you know, they've been resisting uh, falling from their current levels. And so in some ways, I think what the system is telling us is that the Fed may have already reach the minimum level of reserves that are required for these banks to continue to conduct their businesses. So we're kind of trying to monitor all of these various signs. And what we see does concern us, I have to say. Matt Harnbach, we're going to have to finish that conversation another time. Diane Song, to both of you, thank you so much uh, for taking the time on this Fed Day. And I've got to say, uh, we have such an ace panel with us, Tom. The fact that we have such incredible names, Matt Hornbach, Diane Swank, Rich Clarida, who is sticking with us, and we are grateful for that. Joining us now to the conversation, Greg Peters, co-CIO at PGM Fixed Income, and Kathy Jones, Chief Fixed Income Strategist at Charles Schwab. And to that point, Greg, do you see things starting to break in the financial sphere that the Fed is kind of papering over with some of the programs that'll be key to watch? Oh, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think those backstops are just that. They're backstops. I think there is this persistent worry around the proper function of the Treasury market. So regulators are vigilant around that, as is the Fed. Um, so, no, I don't think anything's breaking at this point. Um, and if you just take the data on balance, it's actually reasonably good. So there's this whole sky is falling mentality out there. Uh, and, uh, you know, preparing for a rainy day is important, of course. But, you know, as of right now, it's, uh, you know, pretty right. bright and sunny. Greg Peters, where's an appropriate inflation adjusted rate. If I look at the 10 year real yield, 2.50 early, early this morning. I know you came in late today, Greg. Right now, 2.39%. We've seen a reduction there, but still way elevated over two years ago. Where's the appropriate real yield? Yeah, so I mean, I think we've been so stuck in this central bank dominant world where everything was topsy turvy upside down, where 
actually negative real yields was an inducement, right? And that was a, a far cry in how we thought about real yields in the past, right? Real yields are a function of, you know, pretty strong growth, stable growth, and, you know, a little inflation. So I think we're in a much more normal environment right. today. And quite frankly, Tom, I think we're so jaded by this re recency bias when the Fed just dominated the game and pushed real yields to really kind uh, of uncharacteristically low levels. Kathy Jones with us of Charles Schwab and her recency bias is clients going, should I buy a money market fund or an eight-year CD? Kathy Jones, you know, I, I look at the moment that Greg Peters was just describing, and just simply all it comes down to me is what do I do with 5% cash? What are you seeing at Schwab? What are people doing off of the Fed action with a money market fund? And I'm going to call it 5.5%. Well, uh, we're seeing, again, clients do lots of different things, so lots of different clients, but uh, we are seeing a lot of interest in, say, CD ladders, Treasury bill ladders, Treasury bond ladders. As people look at where the yields are and the real yields, which we've been pointing out, have been pretty attractive, they're starting to sort of tiptoe out the curve. We don't have a lot of interest in going very long on the curve, but I think the idea of capturing four, five, six percent, depending on what instrument you're in, uh, yields going over the next five to seven years is looking more attractive. So we're starting to see a little bit of that action. A lot of laddered securities, though, is a way to kind of average into the market. But I do think we we the longer we can hold in some sort of a range and stabilize, and the more we can get a signal from the Fed that maybe there's not a lot more coming in the way of tightening, you know, the more people will get up the courage to, to extend out a little bit in duration. Kathy, I know that you're very interested in the balance sheet and hearing about what the Fed has to say. And we did just hear from Matt Hornbach that he thinks uh, that the Fed has hit the minimum amount required of reserves, that basically we're bumping up against the size maybe the balance sheet needs to be. Do you agree with that? Yeah, uh, you know, I have only done a small amount of work on it, which is why I want to hear what the Fed has to say about it, because I'd like to know what their thoughts are. And we really haven't gotten them to talk about what's the optimal size. We've had some estimates of 20 to 25 percent of GDP. Now, if you do that, you're going back, you know, we're going down mm -hmm. quite a bit more. Put that against where, you know, reserve re requirements should be. And, you know, you're you're kind of at odds, which is why I find this question of the Fed continuing QT, even when they eventually shift to easier policy, I find that to be a big question mark in my mind as to how that can, those two policies can kind of coexist smoothly. So I don't know that we're at the, the minimum level yet. Uh, I think there's some room to go right. from here. But I am concerned. I would like to know what their a deeper thought process than the little information we've been given. You know, Rich Clarida, what's so important here, and I'm thinking of your conversations in your council to the portfolio managers at PIMCO, and in the moment we're in, there are select people out there saying bonds out in maturity are a screaming buy. How do you frame that at PIMCO, given what the Fed is doing post-pandemic? Can you say price up, yield down, and go out in maturities to get total return? Well, that's what, exactly, uh, in, in, in the sense that investors um, can earn returns that they would have been drooling over three years ago by not moving all that far out on the, on the curve. Certainly, if you look at investment-grade corporate or, or, or mortgage-backed uh, security. So what we're saying is that there is a menu of, 
of opportunities available to investors. But when you can get returns, uh, real rates uh, where they are now, and because we're in the camp that thinks the Fed will succeed in ultimately bringing down inflation, that this is a great, a great entry uh, level. And you don't have to take a lot of duration risk. Some investors, because of of their business model do have more duration risk, but there are opportunities even if you don't want to add that. This is great. The the dean of Columbia Economics is bond manager. I think (laughs) think Rich Clarida just got out a bond ticket and said, let's go long. Which is the reason why he's currently at PIMCO, though I do want to just get a sense from you, Rich, about the balance sheet question, about whether the Fed's balance sheet needs to be a lot bigger than people previously had imagined, and if we're kind of bumping up against that level. Um, I don't think we're bumping up against that level, Lisa. Remember, the Fed has something, another acronym, the Reverse Repo Facility Program that's got a trillion dollars in it. Uh, that money, once it leaves that facility, will then flow back into reserves. So I think if you, if you factor that in, I think there is more uh, r- road for the Fed to travel to shrink its, uh, its balance uh, sheet. Um, I, I, do, I agree with your prior previous guest. It is interesting that, that the Fed has talked about continuing QT uh, even after they potentially adjust rates. You know, when I was there in 2019, we stopped QT um, uh, right. before we, we cut uh, rates. So that would be an right. interesting difference. Professor Clareda, thank you for your generous time today here at this Fed meeting. We're going to let Rich Clareda go here six minutes away from this important press conference. With us, Kathy Jones of Schwab and Greg Peters of PGM. Greg, I'm just gonna ask you a simple question here, and I'm starting to hear it a lot. Are bonds a screaming buy? I think there's a tremendous amount of value in the bond market today, but I wanna go back to, you know, do you really wanna extend duration? I think you do, but you wanna do it very carefully. So I think the shape of the curve matters a lot. You know, Tom, you keep talking about cash, and the, the shape of the curve tells you to be defensive, tells you to be in cash. So if you subscribe to this higher for longer front end rate environment where the Fed can no longer kind of cut down to zero uh, uh, and has that flexibility, then you need to see the curve normalize before you really step in and moss uh, uh, out the curve. So to me, it's really quite simple. The shape of the curve dictates uh, where you want to be on the curve. Uh, and uh, while there is value, absolutely, we're excited about it. I don't really see the need to rush out and lock in duration here. Greg, it seems like a year ago, but we got the refunding agreement uh, for a funding announcement, excuse me, from the Treasury Department earlier today, and it seemed to move the market quite a bit. Do you think that we learned today that supply right now is trumping any kind of fundamental economic read, that it really does come down to simply there are not enough buyers to pick up the U.S. debt with yields as low as they had been traditionally? No, absolutely not, Lisa. Uh, I, I know you like to push that narrative. I don't think that's true. I think on the margin, yes, it does uh, put more pressure on the back end, but it goes back to the shape of the curve. Why is the curve inverted? when we're printing 5% GDP and inflation's around kind of 3%. So, uh, you know, I think that is really the fundamental dictate here, not so much the supply. At some point it will matter, but I don't think that is the driver today. I think that's more of a kind of a politically driven red herring than anything else. Kathy Jones, it'll be interesting to see how the chairman addresses commercial banking 
We've been talking all day about the Keith Briette Index, BKX, uh, really having some challenges technically. And of course, finding a bid has been a challenge, even with the Dow up 100 points, NASDAQ up eight tenths of a percent, VIX 17.43. Kathy, the heart of the matter is a movement of money from deposits to money market funds. And that's the theory here of instability that could come. Do you see those potential instabilities out there in the trust market between deposits and money market funds? Well, I think if there's any issue that the Fed is now very much focused on and has its arms around, it's this one. After you know what happened in March, I've got to believe that the regulators and, and everyone else at the Fed and, and in, indeed uh, in the regulatory environment for banking in general is scrutinizing this pretty tightly. So I don't know that this is going to be some sort of a trigger for a crisis so much as something that's going to have to be worked out over time. And I think that that it probably means a lot more mergers among financial institutions yeah. and you know, recapitalization, et cetera. But it's usually not the things that everyone is focused on uh, that that you know, bring up the crises. It's something that no one's watching. I, I can't say enough about this, Lisa. Well, what we've done today and with the terrible construction of the Keith Brietta Woods uh, chart, it's simply got to come down to combinations and transactions. I, I just see no other way to do it. Yeah, although we do see a lot of positivity in the underlying economy, and we see that with the uh, Jolt report wrote earlier today and a whole uh, host of other components. Greg Peters really was talking about that. So, Kathy, from your vantage point, how much and when do we know that we are underestimating the strength of the economy and the sort of momentum behind this inflation? Well, I think what you're getting at, Lisa, is this question of, you know, what, what's, the, what's the growth rate? What's the underlying growth rate going forward? What's R and R star and all those questions? Um, I think that that, obviously, a lot of debate around that. There is a strong belief that we've moved to a higher level of economic activity, for a lot of reasons uh, going forward than we've had over the past decade or two. And that that means that we're at higher rates for longer, that the resting place is higher than it was before. Um, so, you know, how will we know? I, I think it, in the labor market is probably the key indicator, right? If we start to see an acceleration in jobs uh, and, um, you know, real decline in the unemployment rate, that would be certainly a big surprise. I think expectations are it's going to go the other way since we've had so much tightening in the system. So it'd be a pretty big shock if uh, if we saw that component of the um, economic environment shift upward. Um, I, I don't anticipate that that will happen, but I think that that would be the big surprise. Kathy Jones and Greg Peters, both of you, thank you so much for being with us on uh, the playoffs game equivalent in the economic sphere. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders. 
when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.